Welcome everybody. Uh, this is Under Further Review with Burke and Jen. I'm Burke. I'm Jen. And we're really excited to be back with you after a pretty substantial layoff. Um, Jen returned from Hobbitland, uh, the wonderful New Zealand, um, and is gracing us with her presence once again. That's what I do. <laughs> So today we've got, I think, kind of a short episode. Um, we did want to do some follow-up now that the Derrick Rose civil case has been resolved and um, wanted to have a brief discussion on a, a long-form article that was in Sports Illustrated a couple weeks ago about the murder of um, Will Smith, not the actor, but the... Um, New Orleans Saints player who was shot to death in um, New Orleans after what was um, sort of structured as a road rage incident. Um, but the story in Sports Illustrated does uh, some digging into um, more of the details of the story and um, had some, uh, it was a pretty interesting read. So we thought we would uh, talk through that. So I guess we can start with Derek Rose since that's just sort of wrapping up and it did wrap up while I was down in Hobbiton. Um, so I didn't actually follow the last few days of the trial as closely as we followed the first few just because you know, I had better things to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things that, okay, so in, in the end, the uh, jury found Derek Rose and his two co-defendants uh, not liable for uh, gang rape, sexual battery, and like the other charges, like sexual, was it sexual battery and... I think loss of consortium. Yeah, so there are a couple of allegations, but he, they were found not liable on all of the counts. So um, different than the criminal process, it's not whether you're guilty or not guilty uh, because this is civil and it's really just about monetary damages. You're either found liable for these monetary damages or not liable for these monetary damages. Um, so that's basically what came out in the end. But what I thought was really interesting was that this was a two-week trial, and the closing arguments lasted about three hours from both um, Jane Doe's attorney and uh, Derek Rose's attorney, and then the attorney for the other two co-defendants, whose name I think is Mark Bauta or something like that. Uh, so they made closing arguments for about three hours, and the jury deliberated for about three hours. Huh. <laughs> so... They seem like they pretty much had their minds made up when they went to the deliberation room. Yeah, and you know, one thing that was sort of, um, I, I guess the issue must have come up towards the close of the plaintiff, Jane Doe's case. Um, the judge had set pretty strict limits on how many hours each side was going to be allowed to uh, basically make their case, and Jane Doe's attorneys, um, from what I was reading, were starting to run out of time pretty early on. Um, it sounds like they were able to get through their closing arguments, but um, I wonder, I don't know that anyone's talked about this, but whether they're kind of taking so much time with her testimony caused them any issues oh, in... Like um, their defenses case in chief or right if they ran into issues where they had to start kind of dropping arguments or not being able to expand upon um issues through cross that they mm. would have otherwise liked to have talked about because i think they had something like a 16 hour limit which that's in my head but that seems insane for a two-week trial although mm -hmm. i guess they weren't in um uh, the trial didn't go for you know eight hours a day for yeah. two straight weeks. So. And that is something that people um, who don't actually do trial work and only watch it on TV can't quite like mesh together, which is you don't actually start court every morning at like eight and you go through five and you get like a half hour break for lunch and it's just constant like witness testimony or objections or right. things like that. I mean, most of the time, like the uh, trials like the day doesn't start until 10. There's a lot of pre-hearing stuff like motions and limine, discussions between counsel and the judges about objections to evidence. And and so the actual amount of testimony you have per day is probably closer to like four or five hours, maybe tops. Right, and they take, usually you'll take at least an hour long lunch break. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times, as Jen was saying, the morning session, they won't even bring the jury into the room because mm -hmm. they're dealing with stuff that they wanna talk through outside the presence of the jury mm -hmm. so as to avoid prejudicing them. Um, and it depends on what judge you're in front of, but I've, I've 
been before judges where they take a big chunk of the morning to deal with other cases. That's right. Um, yeah. So they can have a solid chunk of time for the rest of the day mm-hmm. to deal with whatever they're on trial for. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think this, this wasn't a situation where they had, you know, 90 hours sitting in the courtroom over, uh, you know, a period yeah, they, of two yeah, weeks. Yeah, exactly. It probably is something less than that. Um, but again, we weren't there, so we don't know for sure, but just our practical experience tells us it wasn't 90 hours of pure testimony that there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of back and forth between the attorneys themselves and the judges for some of those issues. But. Right, particularly, um, I think, in the Derek Rose case, uh, presumably issues about bringing the victims, the alleged victims or the plaintiffs, um, sexual history. And um, I know there were some issues relating to her Instagram postings and whether that bore on her um, uh, character in such mm-hmm. a way that you would think it's less likely that she could be the victim of a gang rape, which is really a gross conversation to be having, but um, those are part of a zealous defense, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those would be things they'd want to talk about outside the jury's yeah. presence, um, because if the jury heard the whole mm-hmm. argument, if the judge ultimately decided to exclude that evidence, it would kind of be worthless, because it's the idea you can't unring certain bells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly I know that the one of the text messages that... Derek Rose's attorney says that wasn't, you know, handed over by Jane Doe's attorney, you know, that conversation, whether they would, you know, declare a mistrial, that was certainly heard outside of the jury's ears because, again, you can't unring that bell. But um, so anyways, the, uh, they deliberated for three hours and according to, I guess they interviewed two of the jurors. So mm-hmm. the jury was made of six women and two men. Um, and it sounded like from what I, everything that I read, it was the two men who gave the interviews to the press. Um, of course, because everybody cares what men's opinions are over women. So, 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 so dialing that back, Burke, <laughs> um, there was one woman who did provide some comment, but she didn't state her name. And I think the other two jurors, the male jurors did give their names. And so maybe there was, you know, the fact that you could actually attach like someone's identity mm-hmm. to the statement might have been more compelling as opposed to the fact that they were just men. <laughs> um, but they said that they took the first vote and the first vote uh, amongst the jury was already unanimous that uh, she had consented. And the biggest problem that they had with the case was the lack of physical evidence corroborating her story. Um, they couldn't say for sure that she was intoxicated or lucid, so you know they were. Um, they couldn't make a determination one way or the other without physical evidence, and essentially the jury, the unanimous jury, found that uh, she could have done things to prove her case, but she didn't, and that her testimony was unconvincing. Um, so that's so that's basically what came out of it. The thing that I think was the most troublesome to me was the afterwards where Derek Rose uh, posed for pictures with members of the jury um, that you know everyone was all smiles and it was about getting Derek Rose's autograph and um, and I think even the judge made a joke about um, oh I can't remember but it's something to do with like hoping he he did well except when he was playing playing the Lakers yeah exactly which you know, uh, the appearance of impropriety is almost as important as avoiding actual impropriety. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, you know, setting aside whether the burden is absolutely on Jane Doe to prove her case. It was not, the burden was not on the defendants to establish that she wasn't drunk or, you know, drugged mm-hmm. or whatever the elements are of, um, you know, civil trial for mm-hmm. gang rape. Um, that was on her. And if she failed to meet her burden, um, so be it. But, the uh, the the behavior afterwards does kind of lead you to question sort of what exactly happened here and whether um, you know Derek Rose kind of had the case in the bag before he even walked into the courtroom, which is not the way our justice system is supposed to work. But um, I think this is I think this is not atypical of when a celebrity is a defendant in a yeah. case. Um, but the fact that even the judge was kind of in on it, I guess it's one thing when it's a you know jurors who don't mm-hmm. do this every day and they don't have professional responsibilities yeah. to be impartial. Um, but there are in California, as in I think every state, really strict ethics rules that apply 
to attorneys um, and even more specific rules that apply to judges. And this just seems really kind of gross, if not an actual violation mm -hmm. of an ethics rule. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, we're not saying that the judge got Nick's tickets yes. or Lakers tickets <laughs> or any of that, but just for that comment to be made. And I know that it was made after the verdict was read and um, so, you know, things are winding down and, and at that point, you know, he wasn't going to be civilly liable for the $21 million, but still, like, if that comment had been made, you know, after the close of the record and people were just standing around, that's probably one thing, but for it to have been, like, possibly said on the record, it's just creates... It just creates the illusion that um, it's because of celebrity or because this person is famous that, that you know, uh, Jane Doe didn't get justice. But again, um, you know, there were some really troubling aspects to her case that she didn't, couldn't overcome, like the lack of physical evidence. Right, and the, um, I think the text message that seems to have been missing from the evidence she turned over um, you know, it's not really, this is an issue with discovery. It's kind of not for the, uh, producing party to decide what's relevant and what's not. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, accidents happen in discovery, I think more frequently than any attorney would like to admit. Um, <laughs> yep. but this seems like a pretty big screw up to the extent that it, um, you know, they withheld, uh, evidence that could have supported Derek Rose's position. So. One of the jurors um, actually did say that the text did not help them arrive at a verdict. So uh, they, a big deal was made out of these mm -hmm. texts that were withheld, but you know, in the end it wasn't that, it was the lack of corroborating evidence. And they said that you know, some of the elements of her story may have been true, but there was nothing, it was just her word against their word and that there was no like the fact that she didn't go to the hospital and get like a rape kit done or indicate like there was documentation of physical bruising or whatever i think it was it sounded like it was difficult for the jury to um you know basically put these pieces together especially four years after it happened right right that did seem like i mean the statute of limitations is what it is but um and not to blame a you know an alleged rape victim but waiting such a long time to file this lawsuit does seem to have uh, been pretty harmful to her case since it was so far after the fact mm -hmm. certainly raised questions fair or not as to why she didn't do something sooner um and uh, the, as you said, the lack of physical evidence, there's kind of no going back mm -hmm. on that. Um, and sort of going back to something that we had talked about, I don't know if it was last time or the time before, but just understanding how the amount that you ask for in damages sort of can, you know, lend some sort of perception to your case. And so she asked for $6 million in compensatory damages and $15.5 million in punitive damages. And I was just sort of curious, like, how she came up with the $6 million in compensatory damages, because was that, like, aside from lost wages from work, because she couldn't work, or, like, medical bills, or, I'm like, because I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I didn't, wasn't in the room, so I don't know how that was sort of broken down, but $6 million does seem like a lot for a person who might just have a normal job. Right, yeah. I mean, I guess if she was in a position where she argued she couldn't go back to work mm -hmm. um, or needed some kind of like extensive medical care, whether through mental health professionals to help mm -hmm. her move past the trauma she had suffered. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's $6 million does seem like a lot of money for somebody who's not in a as far as we know, she's not, a, you know, not in a profession that requires advanced degrees and is expected to... Or she earns, like, over a million dollars a year right. for her job. I mean, because certainly that four years, six million dollars for us would be way more than our regular wages. But, I mean, if part of it is, like, medical treatments and uh, both either physical or mental or emotional, like, that could have all come in as evidence that, you know, she suffered trauma and, like, whether her therapist would have you know, testify to, you know, not necessarily producing physical evidence, but at least corroborating her story. I don't know who else she called as witnesses, who else Joaquin McCoy called as witnesses on her behalf, so. And part of the reason we might not have a great deal of details on damages is that I think typically in a civil case, the 
sort of initial phase mm -hmm. is whether the person is liable or not, and then you get to the damages question. That's so she true. likely wasn't put in a position where she had to provide explain. evidence mm -hmm. and explain how she got to her her numbers. Um, but you're right. I mean, that does seem like an enormous amount of money um, for somebody who, I guess at this point, would have been out of work at most for four years. Um, I think in the closing argument, Jane Doe's attorney, Joaquin McCoy, did um, ask for an amount that they saw proper. So I don't think they were wed to the $21 million, which again is also another kind of typical strategy, which is you could very well award more if you'd like um, right. or less. But most of the time when you say an amount that you deem proper is asking for more. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know that. So that seems to close um, the Derek Rose saga. She could appeal, and I don't know that she actually is in the process of appealing. So that could be right. And what I think she probably has thirty days or so to mm -hmm. um, file an appeal. Yeah, um, but that's just the notice of the appeal. appeal. Yeah, right. so you don't actually have to file all of your briefs and say why this should be overturned. It's just like you just have to notify the court that you're doing it, um, and then the papers can come later. So it's not like the papers are all lodged and we're ready to go. Right. Um, but once you, you know, the, the trial court, I guess the, it's not set in stone, but once you have a decision out of a jury, um, it's really challenging to get that overturned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she may want to move forward because she really believes she was wrong, mm -hmm. but um, it's definitely going to be an, up, an even more of an uphill battle once you get through the trial court phase and go on to an appeal where you've already been... Um, where the defendant's already been found not liable. Yeah, and most of the times when you do have issues on appeal, it is actually for a legal issue. So it's the interpretation, the application of the law right. as opposed to a credibility finding. So um, even if this did go up on appeal, the likelihood that the court of appeals would actually look and overturn the jury's credibility findings are slim to none. Um, so it's got to be like a legal issue that can be analyzed without any more evidence or um, any more testimony. Right. As a general idea, you know, the trial court, whether it's the judge or the jury, depending on how the trial proceeds, that's the fact finder and the any appeals later on, those courts will rely on mm -hmm. the findings of the initial fact finder um, unless there's something kind of so egregious. I think there are they are escaping me right now. There are certain instances mm -hmm. where the appeals court will look at something completely with completely fresh eyes, <laughs> um, but those are pretty rare circumstances. So um, I didn't realize that today's podcast would actually be heavy in sort of like procedure and the law. So maybe we oh. should do our disclaimer because yeah. <laughs> uh, normally when we talk about like you know whether or not Kim Kardashian's jewels got stolen, that's one thing. But we were actually talking about like legal procedure. So um, again, while we would love to be your lawyers, we're actually not. Um, so please, nothing take nothing that we're saying today as legal advice. Um, if you do have your own legal problems, please seek out legal counsel um, and can't rely on us because we're just two people chatting in a room. <laughs> Excellent disclaimer. <laughs> so, um, so that's Derek Rose. I don't know, do you have any other thoughts on Derek Rose? No. I know the Knicks are a hot mess, but like outside of that... It couldn't happen to a nicer team, I guess. <laughs> I guess one other issue that I, I will acknowledge I have not done any research on, but um, I know while the trial was going on, there was a question of whether the NBA would take any action against Derrick uh, Rose mm -hmm. and sort of what if he is found not liable? Can the NBA still do something about this? Um, sort of regardless of his legal culpability, you know, mm -hmm. the whole situation really is kind of an embarrassment to the league, I would mm -hmm. think. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Adam Silver had not as aggressively as Phil Jackson, perhaps, but had kind of dodged the issue um, through the trial. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm not sure whether the NBA plans to do anything about this um, or what the CBA provides for. But um, as of now... I think Derrick Rose is just going to be playing this season mm -hmm. like nothing happened. Um, yeah, and the, again, the criminal aspect of this is still ongoing, but... Um, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because that, this is a um, sad development that happened uh, while Jen was out of town, but the lead And I had nothing to do with it. No. <laughs> that's, not, that's not why I was out of town. No. 
the uh, lead investigator on the criminal um, investigation into Derek Rose with the um, LAPD was found dead in her home. Um, I don't know that it's been released. I think there were um, some assertions that she had committed suicide um, through a gunshot. Uh, but at the time that the news first broke, there was a question of whether there was any foul play involved. Um, I haven't seen any news more recently about what impact that's having on the criminal investigation. I believe the LAPD came out. Um, shortly after she was discovered um, dead and said there are a number of investigators on this case and mm -hmm. shouldn't have any impact on um, uh, the case moving forward. But and, and again, we're not in any way implying that Derek Rose or his two co-defendants no. had anything to do with uh, this. It was just um, a very unfortunate uh, incident at the time of the trial. And um, definitely there was like maximum exposure for, you know, thinking about if she did commit suicide as people have alleged, then that did get a lot of um, airplay just because of when it happened. One of the interesting things um, that you brought up was what the NBA was going to do mm -hmm. is that Rose's attorney in his closing statement asked the jury to consider the impact of the verdict um, because the impact of the verdict on Derek Rose because if Derek Rose were to be found liable, it would trigger the morality clause in a lot of his contracts, including the contract with the MBA or with his sponsors, and that would cause ruin for his family and his career. Um, I'm shedding a single tear. No, right I know, and you're playing the world's smallest violin. But. Um, what, and you know, this goes back to um, the judges joke about, you know, I'll be rooting for you except mm -hmm. when you play the Lakers, which I think I'm overstating what he said to Derrick Rose, but uh, it was kind of the gist of the comment. During the trial, he, um, I think when the issue of the mistrial came up, so just to refresh everybody, um, when it was discovered that there were certain text messages that were not, may not have been turned over by the plaintiff's counsel to the defense, um, the defense moved for a mistrial to have mm -hmm. the whole thing kind of thrown out and restarted. And the judge seemed pretty unhappy about the entire situation and then commented about having to delay the trial during the NBA oh, season mm -hmm. and um, made it very clear that this wasn't special treatment of Derrick Rose, that he, if it was a, if the defendant were, uh, you know, a PhD student, he would make the same, he being the judge, would mm -hmm. make the same allowances to accommodate their school schedule. Um, so I guess that's, when hearing about his comments after the trial was all wrapped up, that's kind of uh, jumped out to me as really odd since he did seem to take real pains to make it clear he was not providing mm -hmm. some preferential treatment. Um, but back to the point that Jen made, I mean, the fact that he, you know, let's, regardless of whether he did what he did or not, you know, mm -hmm. his, his choices led to him being found liable for this and mm -hmm. then all of his contracts get, Canceled. Canceled. I mean, that's yes. sort of his freaking fault, not hers. Yes. Um, and I'm not sure what relevance. It has no legal relevance, and that's something you'll see in closing arguments. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not about the legal argument. No. It is, like, playing to your sympathies. It's playing to... Actually, I don't know what else. But, yeah, it's, it's just about, um, like, trying to discuss, like, these impacts on these individuals, and it's not application of the law or, like, the evidence. It's... It's a lot of grandstanding, actually. That's what I wanted to say. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, to the extent... It doesn't sound like that factored into the jury's decision based no. on their comments, but mm -hmm. to the extent it did, that's um, unfortunate, but that's yeah. the beauty and sadness of the jury system. You're dealing with flawed humans who can be um, swayed by any kind of evidence, not necessarily kind of straight legal mm -hmm. yeah. evidence. So. Um, just on a side note, that's actually a lot of, uh, this comes up a lot when lawyers get called for jury duty because they don't actually want lawyers in mm -hmm. the jury room with the jury because one, they think we're too bossy, which is kind of true. Um, but two, you know, we would actually be doing the work of lawyers and not the work of a jury member, which right. is just looking at facts and evidence and weighing that and not like thinking about how this applies to this legal standard or blah, blah, blah. So, um, or and, on the flip side, we can inform juries yeah. about the concept of jury nullification, <laughs> where regardless of how the evidence supports the law, the mm -hmm. jury can, in theory, and I guess I should take a step back. I'm not advocating for this at all. This is just a 
real phenomenon that exists out there um, that you know the jury can decide regardless of what the law says and mm -hmm. what the evidence proves we don't want to convict this yeah. person or um, you know find someone liable mm -hmm. for something so um, yeah that happens and I think that's a concern for um, people who maybe mm -hmm. don't think they have the strongest case or a popular case um, mm -hmm. in yeah. the public so not to say that we've ever really gotten out of jury duty, but that's something that... I've never actually been seated on a jury. Have you? I have not, um, but I've been voir dired three times. I've been called for jury duty three times, and I've been in the box three times. Oh, wow. Uh, the first time I was excused because I was in law school, and it was like a week before finals, so the judge is like, you're gone. <laughs> uh, the next two times, one actually they said was like, well, if you're on the jury, would you take over the room and be a lawyer? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just like everybody else. And so I got excused, but later on, so I don't know if that was actually the cause. And then the third time, it was a criminal matter, and they didn't really seem to like the fact that there were police officers in my life so that's um, yeah so but i thought cool. like that's pretty close i've only ever made it into a courtroom one time uh -huh. and then they excused me there were like 200 people mm -hmm. they were polling it was a pretty high profile case i was kind of sad i didn't get <laughs> seated but um so there's no easy transition from our, no. our jury experiences or lack of jury experiences to uh the death of will smith um as Burke explained um, at the top of our podcast, Will Smith, not the actor, but the former New Orleans Saints player who was killed um, April of this year by uh, Cardell Hayes uh, in New Orleans after what might have been a series of road rage incidents. So there's probably some questions as to exactly when the incident started and how it escalated to the point where um, Mr. Smith was shot several times and his wife uh, Raquel was also shot in the legs twice. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth and I think as the trial comes up, you know, there will be a ton of information out there. Um, and the SI article is actually a really interesting one and it delves a little bit into um, Louisiana's Stand Your Ground law, um, which basically, and this is standard ground laws throughout the country, but um, homicide... Probably. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, probably the most famous yeah. instance of, up until now of a standard ground law is the killing of Trayvon Martin in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, George Zimmerman, the shooter, relied on Florida standard ground law to justify his um, shooting of Trayvon Martin, mm -hmm. which I think that's where it kind of uh, first came into kind of national public consciousness, mm -hmm. but each state has sort of uh, their own each state if they have a standard ground law may have its own variation on that yeah uh, and there are about 24 states that do have standard ground laws um so for for generally speaking for standard ground laws like essentially homicide is justifiable self-defense um if you're in imminent danger of losing your life or suffering great bodily harm uh you can basically it's you can resort to self-defense and like the killing or maiming of the person who is being the aggressor um, is justified on the grounds that you are um, protecting yourself and your property. Um, and a lot of stand your ground laws, actually no, I take it back, a lot of protecting your own castle laws and self-defense laws prior to this newest iteration was really about protecting your home, protecting your persons, mm -hmm. um, and you know when you're being attacked uh, most of the time there was this component where one, you weren't the aggressor in this action, and two, that you could not retreat to a safer option, whether that was fleeing the scene or um, getting to a safe space. Um, and the laws that have really come into focus, national focus, because of Trayvon Martin, um, is about uh, not having to retreat, and then also expanding the definition of what your ground is. Right. So, I mean, the idea of not having to retreat or being able to protect your own home has existed since sort of time immemorial. It's since part of castles, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's part of the common law, which is a uh, sort of concept of law that's existed since the Middle Ages in some form or another and was brought to the United States when the English colonists came over. Not to be a legal historian right now, <laughs> but, um, you know, the idea was if you're in your own home, mm -hmm. you shouldn't have to fully in order to keep yourself safe. You should be mm -hmm. able to defend your property and your own life. Um, but to Jen's point, these stand your ground laws that have come into uh, play, uh, you know, across almost half our country 
um, expand the scope of where you're not, where you can decide you don't want to retreat from. Um, in the case of Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, they were out on a public street. Similarly, um, with the case of Will Smith and Cardell Hayes, um, uh, they were out in the street in New Orleans when the incident occurred that led to um, Will Smith being shot to death. And some of the, um, you know, aside from the Will Smith and the Trayvon Martin cases, um, you know, a lot of the Stand Your Ground laws have been interpreted in a way that um, it's not just about the incident happening in the street, but like aggressors in certain situations have also followed individuals like Trayvon right. Martin or like chased individuals. Um, so definitely um, sort of expanding the scope of like what your ground is and like what is an aggressor and what isn't an aggressor. Um, and generally speaking, aggressors in situations like that can't, can't claim a stand your ground. Um, protections because well obviously you're the aggressor so you're not actually defending yourself and in, like I think under the common law if you withdrew and it was understood yeah. that you were withdrawing from the uh, conflict even though you had started it mm -hmm. you can actually use the self-defense if you you know were like basically retreating and the person that was the victim of it becomes the aggressor sure. but I think here that's actually not the case either like I think in a lot of places um, you can still, I think that's actually the thing that's up for debate in the uh, Will Smith thing is who was the aggressor and like when does it flip to aggressor, victim, victim, aggressor situation. Right. So in the case of Will Smith, um, the, so I guess to take a step back, the story that we are talking about, um, was in the October 17th issue of Sports Illustrated written by Richard O'Brien. Um, Dak Prescott of the Dallas Cowboys is on the cover. So I would definitely recommend, um, to the extent it's still available on the internet, checking out the article because it's very well written. Um, but as detailed in the article, you know, the, the incident sort of um, happened where there was a traffic incident between Will Smith, um, his wife was in the car, and I think a couple of other people, including an off-duty New Orleans police officer, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, uh, or did he show up on the scene afterwards? He had been at dinner with them. He had been at dinner with them. So there was, I think, a third person in their car, but yeah. it, I think if I remember correctly, uh, the off-duty New Orleans police officer and one other person was in a different car ahead of them. So they were all like in traffic together, but I don't know that the, the off-duty New Orleans police officer was in Will Smith's car or was just in another car that was like, you know, adjacent to them. I Sorry. believe you're right. No, that's, that's helpful. I feel like I should have probably written down the details of the story better than I did. But anyway, <laughs> um, so, you know, part of what the story is talking about, besides kind of delving more into the details of the um, actual shooting, was looking at the way the media has portrayed Will Smith and Cardell Hayes, that Cardell Hayes was this monstrous thug who just mm -hmm. gunned down an innocent, beloved member of the New Orleans community. Um, Will Smith was playing for the Saints at the time that um, Hurricane Katrina hit, did a lot of work in the community. Mm -hmm. um, but as Richard O'Brien kind of details in this story, you know, Will Smith was probably not the uh, saint, <laughs> for lack of a better, I guess, no pun intended, um, that he was portrayed to be. Uh, but Cardell Hayes was not or is not the monster that um, sort of the media and the uh, police officials who are addressing this case have made him out to be. Um, he was a uh, pretty good football player in his own right. His dad was actually shot and killed by police officers in an incident about a decade ago. Mm -hmm. He and his sister received a significant settlement um, as a result of that shooting. And one of the sort of odd details about this story is that one of the police was involved in the shooting of his father was also involved in the will smith shooting yeah he was the off-duty police officer that uh, the smiths had dinner with and lives in that adjacent car so i think um from what i've read that's just purely coincidental yes yeah. yeah it did it certainly gave a conspiratorial flavor to the mm -hmm. um issue at first but um from everything that i've seen um since then it appears to just be a really weird coincidence and mm -hmm. nothing, um, yeah, nothing really came out of it. So, uh, so I think we were talking, yeah, so essentially the article does break down actually the two men themselves, um, 
and then really sort of tries to account for each person's movement that evening leading up to the shooting. Right, because they think there have been some questions as to whether Will Smith was inebriated at the time of the shooting, mm-hmm. whether Cardell Hayes was drunk at the time of the shooting, whether that had anything to do with what mm-hmm. happened. And then going to when did the incident, the road rage incident actually start? Right. Because mm-hmm. um, there were a couple of, it was kind of a move, it sounded like sort of almost a moving car crash. Like there was, a, mm-hmm. I think there was an incident where Will Smith may have cut off Cardell Hayes and then Cardell Hayes rear-ended him, mm-hmm. um, which then drove his car, Will Smith's car into the car in front of him. Um, then that last series of accidents seemed to uh, have been what triggered Hayes and Smith getting out of their cars, um, both of them armed, yes. as we have now learned. Mm-hmm. Um, at least at the time the story broke, I wasn't aware that Will Smith had a gun. Um, that at least didn't seem to make its way into uh, most media coverage of mm-hmm. the story. Um, and it's based on Will Smith's alleged, uh, the fact that he's allegedly armed and his actions towards Cardell Hayes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what Cardell Hayes is relying on in asserting his stand your ground yes. defense. Yes, that things had escalated to the point where Cardell Hayes felt that his life was endangered um, because of Will Smith's aggressive either gestures or statements or just how it was playing out. Um, I think one of the interesting things that did come out was that um, Will Smith blood alcohol level was three times the legal limit and he was behind the wheel yeah, yeah there's I don't think there's any dispute that he was driving right um, and that I don't believe that Cardell Hayes had uh, a blood alcohol limit that was in violation of the law no I think there was some talk that he may have smoked marijuana at some point in the evening um, but not that he was so inebriated that he um, shouldn't have been mm-hmm. driving um, and according to there was a passenger in Cardell Hayes his car, a guy by the name of Kevin O'Neill, his story all along has been that if Cardell Hayes didn't shoot Will Smith, he was convinced that they were both going to be killed by Will Smith. He was so mm-hmm. enraged by um, the car accident um, that Cardell Hayes had no choice but to, to shoot him. To stand his ground. Right. Um, I guess part of the not having seen sort of a diagram of the scene, how Will Smith's wife ended up getting shot yeah. is a little unclear to me, um, whether she was just, you know, behind him and some bullets went uh, ricocheted or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I guess I would think that if he was legitimately just shooting at Will Smith, um, I don't know how the gunfire ended up shooting uh, Mrs. Smith. Yeah, I, or like whether she, why she was out of the car or any of those things. Like, right. Yeah, we have not diagrammed this out. No. <laughs> while this is really interesting to us, we're not that nerdy. So. No, we're not. We're not CSI <laughs> yet. Uh. There will come a day. Uh, yeah. So there's you know there's a lot of unanswered questions. Um, you know definitely what the impact of having that other car with Will Smith's friends. Um, had to do with you know whether or not this was escalating where they you know it's all very I mean it's really interesting it's sad but it's really interesting from like you know an outsider's um, perspective yeah so um, I believe there is a hearing on December 1st um, related to this uh, this case Um, so we will uh, keep track of the story I think one of the things that um, that did strike me was that when the police arrived on the scene, Cardell Hayes didn't try to flee or anything. I mean, basically, he took the magazine out of his gun, he placed the gun in the magazine on the hood of his car, he cooperated with the police, and even the police said that he was fully cooperative and answered questions and, um, you know, and they, from what I, from at least the tone of it, it seemed like not not that the police were sympathetic, but they certainly weren't painting him necessarily the people on the scene weren't painting him as a thug. I mean, you know, perceptions that came out after, you know, media interviews or whatever, you know, there might have been a different story. But at least from this, from the way that this article was written, it seemed like it was not quite the um, black and white uh, portrayal of the story. Right, and I believe it was the sheriff who, after the fact, came out and you know made the story sound as made the shooting sound as if it was sort of a cold-blooded murder by um, Cardell Hayes. Um, it sounds like what happened in reality was not 
certainly not as clear cut mm -hmm. as that. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, this narrative that Cardell Hayes stood over Will Smith's yeah. dead body and um, kept shooting, shooting at him, yeah. which uh, I don't know that they've forensically disproven that, but, um, you know, it does seem like from other witnesses that that's not quite what happened. Um, but in any event, um, Cardell Hayes is advancing this idea that he was simply standing his ground, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, the, I guess the tweak in the New Orleans or the Louisiana statute um, is that you can basically stand your ground anywhere, um, mm -hmm. anywhere, anywhere out in public. Yes, anywhere the, where the public is entitled to be, according to the statute. Um, which seems like a very um, broad interpretation <laughs> of stand your ground. And it does seem like if you're, you know, out in a public square or whatever, you should be able to find a place to retreat mm -hmm. to without um having to resort killing to someone yeah um which is not a comment on the uh viability of um cardell hayes's defense it just is a sort of a logical matter mm -hmm. i don't know why it's, it's scary to me that you know anywhere out in mm -hmm. public you would have the ability to stand your ground yeah um certainly it doesn't um it doesn't invite people to de-escalate situations. Um, one of the interesting things that I read in following up on the Will Smith uh, article was that um, in Florida between 2005 and 2012, there were 200 instances where stand your ground um, played a role in some phase of prosecution. So it was probably raised by um, the defendant as a defense um, and in those 200 instances, defendants went free 70% of the time. And some of the examples where stand your ground prevailed as a, as a defense really were very striking to me, like chasing people, um, you know, shooting them in the back is like, to me, that's not standing your ground. That is certainly being the aggressor in the situation. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, 24 states have this or a similar version of this law and for the, your ground to be any public space and not even retreat, not even considering retreating as an option. Um, I think, you know, not to stand on my soapbox for too long, but it definitely sounds like the very wrong message about how people in civil society should engage with one another. Right. It does feel like it's being used as sort of a blanket excuse for shooting people out in public. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you are in your car or you can walk away or the person that you're having an altercation with is leaving the scene mm -hmm. um, to then turn around, kill them and say you're just standing your ground yeah. in self-defense seems completely illogical. Yeah, it's because uh, it's not you're not actually defending yourself at that no, point. No, yeah. It seems like the a key mm -hmm. element to establishing self-defense is defending yourself. Yeah. Um, so. So that's, I mean, so there will be lots um, on Will Smith in the next couple of months because this is just getting started. So we will definitely be back with um, more details as we develop if they're, you know, pertinent to our podcast. Um, Mrs. Smith is a friend of the Kardashians. Apparently she and Kim became friends when Kim dated Reggie Bush. So to oh. bring this back to frivolous details that we like to talk about. Um, uh, so it'll be, I don't know if that'll cause even more attention um, to come of this case. But yeah, I expect there will be um, a lot of developments. It does sound like Cardell Hayes is uh, planning on fighting this pretty um, forcefully. So. Yeah. Um, I don't expect that we'll see a plea deal coming up in this kind of going away. No, I don't. I don't either, because I'm sure the plea deal will have him see time, and I don't think that that's what he um, what he wants or believes he yeah, deserves. deserves. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't really have a three minute warning today, as we said at the beginning of our hour that this would be a pretty short one, um, because. Burke is going on walkabout for a couple of weeks, so um, not actually, but she. But we won't be posting any podcast for the next couple of weeks. Hopefully, we will be posting to our blog. Um, we both have pretty strong opinions on the results of the presidential election, which we will not, you know, bore you with here. But um, at least for the things that we wanted to convey to people, we certainly think that um, spending time and reading the statements. Um, made by Stan Van Gundy, Steve Kerr, and Greg Popovich would be worth your time. Um, and in contrast to 
you know, things that have been said or not said by Bill Belichick or Tom Brady. I know we talked about this a little bit today, but... Yes, um, and I, I will preface my comments with, I know my ability to cheer for my hometown sports teams is a really frivolous, uh, privileged conversation to be having right now, but, um, I, you know, from my perspective... Um, I heard that the Patriots lost to the Seahawks last night and actually felt kind of fine about it because um, the comments from the coach and star player, or I guess lack of comments from the star player of my uh, my NFL team of choice were um, disappointing to say the least, offensive and hurtful to say mm-hmm. the most, I guess. Um, but I, you know, I think I will definitely be tuning into more NBA games this season. Um, I think. The very least, uh, Popovich, Van Gundy, and Steve Kerr really acknowledging um, a lot of the fears and pain that people in this country mm-hmm. are feeling um, was uh, refreshing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I know I, I didn't prep you for this at all, or we didn't prep on this <laughs> at all, but um, one of the, you know, living in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, yeah. Colin Kaepernick, of course, is in the media not only for his protests, but, you know, also for his athletic feats or not really feats these days, but I mean, just because the 49ers and the Oakland Raiders are the teams that we talk about, um, you know, in in our local media. Um, But how did you feel about him not actually voting? That's a great question. You know, I generally, my feeling on voting is there are people who fought and died for the right to vote. The least you can do is show up and vote. Um, particularly in California where, um, you know, it's pretty easy to vote, especially you can vote by mail. Mm -hmm. You don't have to establish that you have a reason that you can't show up at the polls. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I would absolutely cut slack to people who are in states that now have really uh, onerous voter ID laws, Mm -hmm. um, and have to wait in line for seven hours to get into the polling place. Um, but you and but, I both voted by mail, and we just filled it out. I yeah. had it sitting at my dining room table, and then threw it in the mail. Exactly. I swung by the county administrative building and dropped it in the lockbox outside, and it was very easy. I even got a, in California, they send you a sticker for See, voting by mail. I didn't have a sticker in my packet, so I Maybe don't... Maybe it's only Alameda County. No, I think other people did too, but I just didn't get a sticker in my packet. They could have just not put a sticker in my packet, but... Um, I did voter observation in Arizona for this election, and this is not a partisan story. It's just all the people who came in, like they would not leave without their damn sticker. <laughs> they were grown adults being like, I need my sticker. Where's my sticker? Um, but, you know, I I guess I was disappointed by Colin Kaepernick. I mean, I, I get it that he, in his view, didn't see... Uh, I, actually, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I think he, at least from what I recall, I read about him um, or his comments on the election. He didn't really see a significant... He didn't think Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump were going to be so different, I guess, in addressing the rights of people of color in this country. And that is perfectly, a perfectly valid opinion for him to have. And I think that my biggest problem is that, um, you don't get to beef if you don't participate. Right. And secondly, even if you didn't make, even if you didn't cast a vote for a presidential candidate, there were like 36 state propositions in California, at least. And local elections, um, I think if this can be my moment on a soapbox, um, local elections are so important. Mm -hmm. That's really where, you know, not to say that who's elected president isn't important. Obviously it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the end of the day, it's your local officials, your mayors, your city council members, your district attorneys, Mm -hmm. your uh, judges. judges. Those are the people that have a real impact on your day-to-day life Mm -hmm. or who set, you know, criminal justice priorities, which if that's Colin Kaepernick's, that's his issue to stay home and say, like, I'm not going to be involved here. Um, I don't think he's really serving his cause. I think his protest is great. I hope he, A, it's completely within his rights um, to do so. Mm -hmm. I think he's made a really important point to the public. Um, I personally have been protesting the NFL this season for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I learned that racist assholes are protesting the NFL this season because they don't like that the NFL hasn't punished Colin Kaepernick, I started to rethink my own protest. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I just... I feel like he should have participated. Yeah, and really, and I think that just undermines his credibility in terms of his protest. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's and that's too bad because his message is really an important one, and 
Um, but just to, like, I'm sorry, you just can't complain if you don't participate. It's just... Right, and I think is a really good example. I live in Oakland, um, which hopefully is not disclosing too much information about myself <laughs> on the podcast, but there was a measure um, that the residents of Oakland were able to vote on about citizen oversight of the police department. Mm-hmm. You know, that's imperfect as that measure may have been. I mean, that's huge. Um, Oakland Police Department has had some issues uh, dating back many, many years. Um, so again, yeah, you don't have to. I think in most states, um, I know at least in California, you can just abstain from voting for a particular office yes. and then vote for others. Yeah. Um, so he could have said, I'm not mm-hmm. going to vote for president. I don't think yeah, any of these people exactly. are interested in my interest. But mm-hmm. um, you know, there are other, I think, important propositions and uh, local local elections. elections yeah, that, absolutely. So, um, well, I guess. That was our three-minute warning. Yes. Oh, and one last thing. We didn't talk about the incident with Josh Brown, the Giants kicker who um, beat his wife, didn't seem to get in trouble for it, and then uh, 168 pages of his personal journals were disclosed where he... Talked about how he's... Beating his wife? Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, effectively like a... I don't know, just a horrible, horrible misogynist abuser treated his wife like she was subhuman. Um, there's been no additional... Actually, no, what am I talking about? He was basically suspended indefinitely by the NFL. By the team. And he was cut by the team. Um, and the uh, setting aside, I guess, irrespective of all the punishment he may have now gotten... Um, Annie Apple, who is the mother of Eli Apple, who is a uh, rookie with the with the Giants, mm-hmm. um, came out and made public statements saying, you know, the Giants really dropped the ball in responding to the Josh Brown incident. John Mara, the owner, before the NFL um, had taken any steps to do anything about Josh Brown, basically said, like, well, you know, we stand by our player and he's a good person, yada, yada. Um, and Annie Apple took exception to that um, and then came out publicly by saying, you know, John Mayer might own the Giants, but he doesn't own Annie Apple. And um, she, I think, first came to fame while her son Eli was playing college ball um, as a very colorful um, character, continued through the draft. And um, I just, I think she seems like a really uh, fantastic lady. <laughs> and I'm glad that she is speaking out about this because the more voices that um, the NFL hears, whether it makes a difference or not, um, I think they need to hear it from their fans. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because, um, you know, NFL ratings are down. We can decide or we can just dissect all the number of reasons why. But I think um, it has to be in part that, like, people are boycotting the NFL for a variety of reasons. But it has the same effect, right? You're right. boycotting the NFL. Um, so if you want to get in touch with us, we're at underfurtherreview.bg at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ufr-bg. Might be underscore. Oh, underscore. Damn it. Yeah, this is probably, we probably should have done a little more, uh, or at least have like our canned um, We should probably response. just write it down. Okay, so Instagram and Twitter are ufr underscore bg. Um, and you can follow us or you can check out our blog at um, underfurtherreview.bg.com. Uh, I think it's, dash? that's the dash. So it's uh, so our awesome. website is underfurtherreview-bg.com. You know, we'll have it all trained out one of these days. Um, so that's it from us this time around. You'll hear from us in a couple of weeks. Um, we'll probably have lots more to talk about. And until then, have a good week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>